0: The death rate from opioid intoxication uh, deaths increased over a thousand percent nationwide. It's just been a huge, huge burden throughout the country. Um, That plus the violence, uh, often drug related violence, uh, you know, that's another heavy burden in an office like the OCME because each one of those cases is much more time consuming, much more complex and uh, takes up so much more time.
1: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Today we'll be looking at forensic pathology, and my guest is Bruce Goldfarb. Now you might remember Bruce from episode eight of this podcast where we talked about his first book, 18 Tiny Deaths, the untold story of Francis glesner Lee and the invention of modern forensics. Today we're talking about Bruce's new book, OCME, Life in America's Top Forensic Medical Center the book raises some interesting issues that apply not only to the OCME in Baltimore, but to forensic pathology as a whole. All right, here's Bruce Goldfarb. All right, well, well, first of all, Bruce, thanks for coming back on the podcast. This is your second time here, and I know we talked about your previous book, 18 Tiny Deaths," the last time. And today, we're gonna to talk about your new book, which is called OCME, Life in America's Top Forensic Medical Center. So my first question then is, uh, you know, I'm curious when when did you start having the idea to uh, write this book?
0: Uh, you know, coming from a, a journalism background, uh, I knew when I started there in 2012 that it was going to be a unique experience. So I always had in the back of my mind maybe one day I might do something, but it wasn't until the the chief medical examiner, Dr. David Fowler, resigned at the end of 2019 that I I decided that this was the time to do it and uh immediately started working on it.
1: Okay, I see. And that so that's you've been working on this for a couple of years then.
0: It was about uh, two years of work. It was I started literally on at the beginning of 2020 and through 2020 and 2021 and I com- I finished it on I believe it was January 1st, 2022. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Now, the book is partly
1: autobiographical. And you tell the story about how you started out as an EMT. So, can you kind of give a little bit of that story, like how you got started in
0: that field? Well, how I started out as an EMT um, at the time. At yeah. the time that I got involved, uh, it was the uh, late 1970s, and the whole uh, idea of emergency medical services at the time was brand new, and there was a lot of activity in the area, federal funding to develop these. Uh, these programs and training and it was something new and exciting and um you know I I grew up watching emergency uh on television with uh, Gage and DeSoto and so um yeah yeah a- and it was great I I enjoyed it but love that show <laughs> yeah but the problem was that there there weren't a lot of career ladders at the time there was uh, you know you're either you're an EMT or a driver and that was pretty much it so I was looking for something bigger and better. And uh, I I learned about this place in Baltimore, the Shock Trauma Center. They have a statewide trauma network here and they started a program, an undergraduate degree program at University of Maryland. So I I went and uh, I came up here to get my, uh, finish my baccalaureate. But I, I had been sort of playing around with writing and I'd been fiddling around and I had been, I contributed for, uh, you know, free weekly and little community papers and not really having any sense of, you know, what to do with it or anything. It was just kind of this little side thing. And it wasn't until I realized that I could make money at it. And, um, well, there's no looking back, you know, it was just, uh, it was just a lot of fun.
1: The kind of the combination of being an EMT and the journalism, that combination of skills kind of led to your position at the OCME. Uh, can you tell me how that happened?
0: It, it did. Um, I sort of had a relationship with the OCME in a way. I had written about the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death, which are located there, and uh, the creator, that's the subject of my my first book, 18 Tiny Deaths. But at, at the time, I had been uh, working for a... A network of hyperlocal news websites that were owned by huffington post and aol and um met a a a guy who was one of the key personnel at the ocme and he arranged a tour and it and it turns out that the, the the chief medical examiner really likes emts they they like to um for the forensic investigators um, it's, it's a lot easier to extend that skill set. The, the work of a forensic investigator is very similar in many ways to an EMT. EMTs are trained to respond quickly to a scene, and you do your quick assessment, and you report back your observations, and it's airway, breathing, circulation. A- and the forensic investigator is essentially doing the same thing, going to the scene as an extension of the doctor and being their eyes and ears and doing an assessment and reporting back your observations. Uh, the the assessment is a little different, but it, the the process is similar. And um, so it, it really, I fit in very well. Many of the folks who work there are uh, they're, uh, 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 firefighters, they're uh, ex-law enforcement, they're military people. Uh, many of them are EMTs. So it was just like a, you know, a like-minded group of people. And, and it is sort of, I fit in well with the organization. Okay. And then, so how, how did that, how did that lead to the, cause cause it seemed like in,
1: in the book, you describe how uh, this person was just, just describing this position to you and you're like, Oh, that's me. that okay. I exactly fit that.
0: Yeah. He, uh, Ch- Mike Eagle, who is the uh, director of it and custodian of records and, um, uh, one of the key personnel and I knew him from my community and we developed this friendship and he arranged a tour through the OCME and you visited there and uh we're we're yeah. going through Scarpetta house the the big full scale staging where they do the uh, stage death scenes for training purposes and mm-hmm. when we're inside the room he mentioned that they have this new position as an executive assistant for the chief medical examiner and it would be somebody working directly you know at in the chief's suite directly for the chief and an ideal candidate would be Somebody, you know, who was, had an EMT background and some journalism experience. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, that there aren't a whole lot of EMT slash journalists uh, around, I guess. But it was really, um, I interviewed for the job. And after I got it, they told me that there was nobody else who was even close to, you know, to meeting those specific qualifications they were looking for
1: okay, I see that. That's got to be nice to be, uh, you know, not only getting the job, but, but knowing that you were really the only one that was qualified.
0: It, it was honestly something made exactly for me. It, it uh-huh. Being the chief's assistant required just this weird skill set where you have people skills and patience. And I have the ability to, I can do a really deep, soothing funeral director voice. And um, he had, uh, Dr. Fowler had me, I was basically the uh, uh, OCME's crisis intervention team. So, you know, I would, when people were upset or angry, they would be sent to me and I could talk them down and be very soothing and, and, and listen to them. It was just really, it was just absolutely custom made for me. Okay. I see.
1: And I think throughout the book, you give a few examples of you kind of talking people down, like you just mentioned in the book, you describe the history of the OCME in Baltimore, and it's a really long history and you you go into some really great detail And I, I, as I was reading that, it seemed like this was to show kind of the long journey to becoming one of the best, if not the best in the country. Is that what you were trying to do with that, with that history?
0: Yes, exactly. And to show how, how uh, really terribly people had been uh, the dead had been treated in the past and uh, the grave robbing. I thought that the interest, the, the history itself was rather interesting. The relationship between civilians and uh, and the dead and and this whole the thing you know people recognize intellectually the need for something like this but they don't want it near them they don't you know they they want a medical examiner's office they don't want to pay for it they we need a morgue somewhere but we don't want it anywhere where we work or we live you know obviously we have to do you know that's not going to work so I, I, I exactly as you say i thought it was important to show this evolution from, um, really disrespectful grave robbing to, you know, treating people decently and, and doing a scientific, uh, professional death investigation. Did you have to research much of that history or did you know a lot of it just from the, the job you were doing? Actually, in, interestingly, um, the, it was, I guess around 2014 or 2015, the uh, we were contacted by uh, Thomas Noguchi, who is the coroner of the stars, the former medical examiner in, in Los Angeles, and uh, he's still alive and still active and still doing things. And Noguchi uh, edited is editing a um, at, for the National Association of Medical Examiners. They call it the name book, and it's and it's a history of forensic investigation systems throughout the country. And they keep adding to it. If you go to the, the org and you look for history, they, there's this uh, name book. And so Noguchi asked uh, Fowler, uh, who is my boss, for a history of the OCME of Maryland. So Fowler came to me and he said, "Write about write about the history of, you know, death investigation of Maryland kind of thing. And I said, okay. And, and to his credit, he let me really go off deep into this. And I spent time going through the archives and um, all sorts of uh, uh, really old source material tracing death investigation to the very first autopsy in the colony of Maryland and the first coroner's inquest back to 1637 and up right up to the present day. But I thought in particular, what interested me was this effort to uh, construct a dead house just to have a place where uh, where the dead could be kept long enough that they could be identified so they wouldn't be buried I mean that's what would happen was that they people would just go missing and uh, they would bury them um, and uh, that would be that and by the time the family knew that the, the husband or the uh, their child was dead, they'd be gone and they couldn't locate the body anymore. so it was a really uh, horrible, horrible situation.
1: Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, uh, that whole history that that section of the book I think that was that might have been my favorite part. I mean, it's it's very detailed, and I think uh, when when people read it, they'll I think they'll enjoy that part. Now, of course, the book is about the situation in Maryland at the OCME, but I, I think it really points out issues in medical examiner offices across the country. Like, for example, you talk about uh, the misconception that the police and the medical examiner are kind of part of the same entity, which is sometimes portrayed that way on TV. Um, can, can you kind of explain that misconception?
0: Well, I mean, that that's exactly it. I, I, there's so many misconceptions uh, about forensic medicine and forensic science in popular culture. Um, but you watch these TV shows for one thing. Every case is a homicide, and every case is this relentless pursuit of justice, and and people don't realize how small you know, most of the cases are natural causes, and all sorts of other things come before homicide, accidents, um, and drug overdoses. But, um, you know, the TV shows show—I uh, mean, in Maryland, at least, there there are very clear boundaries in terms of what is the police role and what is the medical examiner's role. Um, there are some places that, that combine the forensic science, where they have one combined lab where they do indeed— you know, can, go they go for them for the ballistics and the fingerprinting and the trace evidence and toxicology, um, but uh, in Maryland at least uh, the the authority begins and ends around the chalk outline around the body and and you know the, the medical examiner is strictly involved in that examination of the body and not concerned with other evidence that's outside that chalk outline. But in, you know, you watch the TV shows and the medical examiner is you know hot on the trail of finding the suspect to interrogate and. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And it's particularly a sensitive issue because these, um, uh, the, these high-profile cases, these, these uh, tragic cases of people dying in the custody of police. And so, you know, naturally it casts some doubt about the process and the independence of the medical examination and the forensic autopsy. And um, at least, you know, in Maryland, I can't speak to throughout the country but in Maryland, the medical examiner is autonomous and independent, and uh, you know certainly people don't realize the, the disagreements that go on. The, very often, the medical examiner and the police don't agree about uh, you know, whether a case was a, a suicide or a homicide, and and very they, often the police and prosecutors don't agree. They don't they butt heads, uh, but they don't, they never portray that stuff in the TV shows because it's it's sort of drags down the story. So I thought it was important to, you know, to, to explain how the agency operates and explain the relationships between the various, I hate the word stakeholders, but I, you know, I wanted to show the public, the media. I I didn't, I I should have gotten more into the the state's attorney's office, but the police is certainly a big uh, piece of it. Okay. Yeah. And I think that that's important. That's a really good uh, point to make in the
1: book. Because you're right. I mean, people don't understand that. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Bruce Goldfarb. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory specific courses mm-hmm. and other resources developed by lab specialists like us for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Okay, whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there is one thing that we all need, comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from, As a matter of fact, I just bought a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, and I got to tell you, they are so comfortable. I might even be wearing them right now. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Oh yeah, and while you're there, make sure you sign up for their loyalty program, where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Bruce Goldfarb on the People of Pathology podcast. You know another another issue that you bring up in the book is the staffing issue, and the fact that there simply aren't enough forensic pathologists. And at the, at the OCME in Maryland, the number of autopsies performed by each pathologist was rapidly increasing, especially in, in recent years. And I know there are some regulations uh, that come into play with that. Can you can you kind of talk about that?
0: Well, what you're saying is true. Um, between 2012 and 2020 the number of uh, uh, of cases that were referred to the OCME increased by 80% nearly doubled during that time period and uh, the number wow. of autopsies yeah it's a big increase and the number of autopsies increased by 60% which is a, a, a fairly substantial increase while at the same time the number of doctors who were available to do these autopsies decreased so the workload Per doctor just gets higher and higher. And um, it got to the point where at at one day in, I believe it was 2020, there were 28 cases in for autopsy at the OCME. And because the doctors were unavailable because of of court dates and people out sick, there were only two doctors and two autopsy techs. And those two teams did the entire 28 cases. And the, It's just an absolutely brutal workload, and, and it's yeah. not limited to, to Maryland. Right now today, there's only, what, 400, 450 forensic pathologists working in the country? And um, uh, name mm-hmm. National Association of Medical Examiners, they estimate that we need 1,000 to 1,200 right now just to take care of our present needs. So it's a very severe shortage nationwide. Yeah. And then so
1: you take that that staffing issue. And then on top of that, you've got a couple of public health concerns that I think, you know, hit hit ac- across the whole country. But it seems like in Maryland and in Baltimore, it was a little bit heavier. The, the first one being uh, the opioid epidemic. Now, from your yeah. perspective at your position at the OCME, like how did that affect the workload?
0: Well, it 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 increases the the examinations tremendously. I I was really shocked. I did not appreciate until I uh, started working at the OCME how extensive drug use is in our society. And you know, people were people who were in their fifties, sixties, seventies were dying from uh, fentanyl and other very powerful synthetic opioids. And you know, these were people who. I guess were sort of uh, maintained uh, addicts all these years until they get a uh, some some product that's 20, 50 times stronger than what they're expecting, or they get a hot shot. And um, and one of the issues is that you know traditionally back in the day, when somebody gets in their fifties or sixties and that age, and they're found you know, so-called dead in bed where there's no sign of a violence, secured premises. Um, You can be pretty sure that's cardiovascular. It's probably a heart attack or a stroke. And in in many cases, they would, depending on somebody's history, they would assign them out as cardiovascular. But you can't be so sure these days that there isn't an opioid that's involved in that. So they have to do, you know, more toxicology, examine more people, because you can't assume that something that looks straightforward is in fact straightforward so, um, the number of Kate, well, uh, nationwide between 2000, uh, I'm sorry, 2013 and 2019, the death rate from ov- opioid intoxication, uh, deaths increased over a thousand percent nationwide. It's just been a huge, huge burden throughout the country. Um, that plus the violence, uh, often drug related violence, uh, you know, that's another heavy burden in an office like the OCME because each one of those cases is much more time consuming, much more complex and uh, takes up so much more time.
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. So you've got lack of staffing. We've got the opioid epidemic increase in cases. And then on top of that is COVID. Now you write about this pretty extensively in the book, how COVID affected uh, things at the OCME. Can you kind of give us a little summary of, of
0: that? Yeah, I mean, COVID affected all businesses, and being a you know a critical essential uh, uh, organization, we couldn't close the doors. Uh, it can't work remotely, so it, organizationally, it affected us like that affected uh, uh, a lot of companies. Um, there was a, I would, it was not a huge increase. Most people who died from COVID died in hospitals where they're known to be sick. And, and so, uh, since COVID is a natural cause, most of those people didn't come through the hospital if they're under the care of a doctor, but there were many more people who, uh, who did die, who either they didn't have access to healthcare, didn't have insurance, um, didn't go to the doctor. And, uh, there were quite a few who, who did, um, I, I don't know the exact numbers, um, it was not trivial, but, uh, there were people who, who, uh, who died of COVID at home or, or elsewhere w- without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And it,
1: it seems like it really kind of changed a lot of procedures, uh, at the OCM, OCME as well. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, they did incorporate testing. Um, it changed, um, how they, how they handle bodies and, and, and those sorts of things. But, you know, uh, a medical examiner's office, I- at least the OCME. I mean, I guess it's true of any medical examiner. They handle people with infectious diseases every day. There are people who come through with influenza meningitis, um hepatitis, um, any number of things, HIV. And so, you know, the the precautions a prudent person would take, uh, protective precautions, routinely. Um, I, I th- there was much more of that, I and mean, there was a period of time. When, you know, people were doing the full wearing garbage bags and, and triple masking and wearing the isolation suits and, and all that, which was, um uh, I mean, that's a hard, hard way to work. But, um, you know, it, it, it did have that sort of impact, yeah. So it,
1: with, with all these things happening then, it seems like the final straw where things really started to sort of fall apart com- becomes a lack of funding, which again is not unique to Maryland. I mean, that happens all over the country as well. And you talk about this in the book, too, how the lack of funding started to affect, you know, everything else pretty much that we just talked about. Can can you can you can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, I I mean, there's there's a few things there. One is that there is a uh, for for the past years and decades, there's sort of been this 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 widespread sentiment that that government is the problem and it's just an expense. And and what is it good for? with that and the opioid epidemic and COVID the whole public health system has just been just tremendously stressed, uh, throughout the country. And, um, you know, we had a Republican governor, uh, Larry Hogan for many years, who was a fiscal conservative, a social, uh, moderate. Um, but you know, that was his whole shtick was, was reigning in the budget and, keeping costs under control. And all during this time, the, the, anytime, you know, if if a secretary left because she retired or took another job somewhere else in government or the private sector, they would then take that, that, take that position away. And and so you couldn't replace the person who left in a sort of reducing staff by attrition. When I started at the OCME, there were 84 employees. And when I left, 10 years later, there were 63 uh, employees. The number of medical examiners has actually stayed, it's not as dramatic. I believe that there was 12 or 13 at the time when I started. Now there's nine uh, assistant medical examiners who are working full-time. But in order to take care of the caseload that goes through the agency, there should be 26 medical examiners. So they're actually operating at, you know, nearly one third the workforce that they need for the work that they have to do. Wow. It's a bad situation and it's bad to recruit people. It's, you know, you you try and hire a doctor. We're going to we're going to pay you at the low end of the spectrum. We're going to work you to death and you get to live in the beautiful paradise of Baltimore. You know, what's not it's really, really tough to. Sell that to people.
1: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And, and again, that's not that's not unique to to Maryland or to or to Baltimore. I, I've heard about that in other parts of the country as well. Uh, okay, so it, this was uh, I, I appreciate kind of the behind the scenes look uh, at the book, and of course, I got to re- I got to read it before it was released, so I appreciate that as well. Uh, this is, I, th- I think, I told you it was a very eye opening read uh, because it's not just in baltimore i mean this is this is the state of forensic pathology across the country
0: there there are you could look at almost any major city uh los angeles chicago boston new york state by state mississippi where there's there are backlogs of of people waiting for autopsy and and there are delays in getting autopsy reports completed and 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 uh, released which you know it not only distresses people during their times of grief, the family and next to kin, but it puts everything on hold. And um, the life insurance doesn't get paid out there, including burial benefits. Um, there are pensions hanging in the balance, investigations, criminal investigations, civil litigation, even things like child protective services where there could be other people at risk based on the information that comes from this autopsy report. And there are people who wait for months, uh, e- even years. Uh, in Mississippi, it's not uncommon. I've heard of people waiting five years for an autopsy report. So during those five years, there's no arrest in a homicide. There's no criminal invest Everything's on hold. You're waiting until uh, you get this, uh, the official word. And so uh, it's a, it's a really, really terrible situation. Now, And having said that, you have to bear in mind that half of the country is still on the coroner system. And there are vast parts of the, of the country, mostly in rural areas, suburban and rural areas that have, you know, very limited access to forensic pathology. I was recently, not long ago, I was visiting a Midwest state that you would recognize if I named it, but uh, I was in this community where 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 the closest forensic pathologist is is an eight hour drive away, and there are no forensic investigators. They they rely on the police to take their um their their scene photos and the and the photos of the body, which are evidence. And these police, of course, don't have the forensic death investigation experience. So you know it's um you know it's it's a it, it's a terrible situation. It's 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 so. Um, you know, you have to really think really hard whether they're going to send a body off, you know, and that expense to send it eight hours for a forensic autopsy. And so there's, you know, there are concerns, at least that I have. I'm not the only one about the quality of forensic death investigation throughout the country.
1: Yeah, I can understand that there are. It seems like we're kind of coming to a everything's kind of coming to a head and we something is going to need to be done in the uh in the near future to, uh, to correct these problems. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bruce, this is really interesting conversation. I appreciate you coming back on the podcast, uh, talk about your new book, which I highly recommend. And of course I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Bruce Goldfarb. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Dennis. It's great to talk with you again.
1: If you're looking for another episode of the people of pathology podcast to listen to after this one, Here's a trailer from my interview with Forensic Pathologist, Dr. Walter Kemp.
2: Well, I mean, I always tell the students, you know, that the thing about it is I said most of you, the vast majority of you are not going to go into pathology. However, the vast majority of you are going to use pathology. And you know, it's one of those things where I think you could argue the same thing for radiology, that most physicians use it, but they don't ever are not really that well exposed to the actual field themselves. So I've seen on Twitter, you know, I think people talk about the the need for, you know, for medical students to do, you know, a little bit of pathology during their training. I -hmm. would agree with that, but at the same time, there's so much that's crammed into those third and fourth years to take even two weeks of it is a lot of time. And you could argue a lot of fields like ER, a lot of things, a lot of physicians in their training and in their job are going to be exposed to some area of that field and could use it. You know, but I I think like uh, UND had uh, where the students could have like a a day or two where they explored another specialty. And I think that was a great opportunity because even a day or two, if they just followed a specimen through on surgery, so they understood what it meant when they got a frozen section, that wouldn't take that long. I think they'd get a much better appreciation for what they were doing. And I think you could easily incorporate changes like that into a field.
1: You can hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Walter Kemp in episode 88. All right. Well, great. Big thanks to Bruce Goldfarb for coming back on the podcast. And of course, I'll have links to both of his books in the show notes for this episode. And the new book once again is called OCME Life in America's Top Forensic Medical Center. It's an interesting read. Now, obviously, I'm not a forensic pathologist. I don't work in forensics at all. But the book was interesting to get kind of an inside look. And I think, like I said, during the interview, the history part is is really interesting. It's worth the read just for that. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at People of Path, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, you can check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.